This episode is sponsored by the Indiana University Muslim Voices Project and the Inner Asian and Uralic National Resource Center. The Indiana University Muslim Voices Project in partnership with the Inner Asian and Uralic National Resource Center works to counter Islamophobia by amplifying diverse local, regional and global Muslim voices and critically dismantling Islamophobic discourse and representation. Find them online at muslimvoices.indiana.edu and on Twitter at Muslim Voices. For one thing, he was not a pacifist, so he may have been a proponent of nonviolence, but he was a crit- he became a critic of pacifism. He thought that it is better to fight than to submit. The people who become icons in our times tend not to be icons for their entire lifetime, you know, or for their entire careers. It's quite interesting. It's interesting when a child becomes an iconic figure of this kind, you know. So it's it's an iconicity that is not dependent upon age and knowledge and experience, nor does it depend upon learning, you know, their kids. But it it's really about the kind of truth that can emerge, as it were, out of the mouths of babes, as the Bible has it. It's their innocence, it's their lack of experience that is what speaks to us, and the fact that they represent the future. Welcome back to Immigrantly. I am your host, Sadia Khan, and I am so excited to bring you yet another episode of the podcast. Now, those of you who are our frequent listeners know that we at Immigrantly love our academics. This is because the majority of them are incredibly interdisciplinary in their work, connecting ideas from all sorts of fields of study. And that's what we try to do on the podcast as well, right? So it makes sense that we have so many of them as guests. Today's guest is seriously no exception. Faisal Devji is a historian who specializes in studies of Islam, globalization, violence and ethics. Pretty intense, right? Faisal has taught at Yale and the New School. He is currently a professor at St. Anthony's College at the University of Oxford. His multidisciplinary work grounds empirical historical issues in philosophical questions. His published work, which you should absolutely check out, includes Landscapes of the Jihad, which explores the ethical content of jihad, and the impossible Indian, Gandhi and the Temptations of Violence, which basically presents Gandhi as a hard-hitting political thinker rather than an idealistic pacifist. Let's get started. I am 
so excited that you're on our podcast today, Faisal, and I have a ton of questions for you. Really looking forward to it. And you know, the interesting thing is every time we have an academic or a scholar, I'm excited about how much I can learn from them. So I have a lot of questions and a few theories to test. I want to get your opinion on a few. But before we delve into that, let's talk about you. Having grown up in East Africa, how do you think the culture there has shaped your worldview? And before we talk about that, what was the culture like growing up? Well, I only have fond memories of the place. Uh, it mm. was a very mixed place, ethnically, linguistically, in culinary terms, uh, because you had all kinds of people, even if you were just, you know, sticking with the South Asians for the moment, who, of course, were a small minority in East Africa as a whole. You know, you had people from all the way from the you know top to the bottom bit of the Western Indian coastline. You had people speaking different languages with different religious identities and different food traditions and who looked different from each other. And then, of course, you had other migrant groups from Arabia, from the Arabian Peninsula. So Oman, uh, which ruled Zanzibar and some parts of the East African coast, you know, from the towards the end of the 18th century into the 19th and early 20th, uh, you had people from Yemen, and then, of course, you had, you know, African populations that were, came to be known as African racially, uh, but who were comprised of many different groups with many different languages and, and, mm. and cultural traditions again. So it was a very mixed group. It was somewhat segregated, uh, because remember, these were colonial societies. Uh, right. Not Zanzibar so much because it had been the site of a sultanate. There was a sultan of Zanzibar who came from the Omani royal family. But many of the other parts of East Africa had been founded other cities, like Nairobi, or, uh, you know, had been founded as British colonial cities. So they were racially segregated, but they were also segregated in terms of community. You know, very often you had Arabs and Indians. Sometimes they lived together, sometimes yeah. they lived apart. So this is the nature of a colonial city, but also, of course, Zanzibar itself, which had been a great slave trading uh, center in, in which slavery was also racialized. Uh, so there, too, mm. you had a curious situation in which you had slavery and the slaves were defined as African, Black African, but huh. you also had intermarriage between slaves and non-slaves and people also being manumitted and freed. So it was a... A society, like all societies, somewhat segregated, hierarchical, and hmm. to some degree violent, but also very mixed. And so, of course, I grew up well after the abolition of slavery and all the rest, right. after colonialism. But I grew up with those inheritances. But as a child, it was for me a kind of magical place because there was so much to experience and so many different people to meet and playmates the friends of my parents and grandparents. Uh, and so we grew up hearing different languages, which we didn't understand, but they were everyday hmm. occurrences. They were not strange in that sense. Sampling food that was different from the food we ate at home, 
people dressed in different ways. So it was in that sense a, a quite diverse culture, though with a background of hierarchy and violence. And there was violence targeted at South Asians in particular, right? Many South Asians left Africa because of the violence. Did you notice that growing up? Was it before you were born or was it practiced even later? Well, you know, clearly, you know, there was some of this had been building up and the historians tell us that it's from the 1940s, basically, Hmm. that you know, anti-Asian and these, so after India and Pakistan become independent and they, you know, colonial India is split into these two countries, India and Pakistan. Right. People who used to be known as Indians are suddenly renamed as Asians because they are neither Indian nor Pakistani. So we were called Asians uh, and they may well have been anti-Asian sentiment to some degree, but it was not politically formulated until the 1940s. Uh, during the Second World War and afterwards with the rise of nationalist movements in these East African countries. So they were anti-Asian movements and policies, but even more important, anti-Arab. And the first to come to a head were the anti-Arab policies. So Zanzibar was a sultanate, as I said, uh, you know, the sultan was called an Arab, though, of course, as it were, in terms of appearance or even genetic identity, it was impossible to tell the difference very often between who was an Arab and who was an African. In 1964, Zanzibar, un- immediately after it became independent, it underwent the first great revolution in sub-Saharan Africa. It was an anti-Arab revolution. And about 10% of the population was killed. So that's genocidal numbers you know, uh, about 18 to 20,000 people out of 200,000. It was Arabs who who were targeted, not Asians in that revolution. The Asians were certainly not preferred either. And it was, you know, in the later 60s, 1960s, that anti-Asian sentiment came to the fore Hmm. on the mainland. And the famous instance, the most famous instance of this was exactly 50 years ago, you know, I mean, nearly 50 years ago, in 1972, you had the expulsion of Asians from Uganda by the dictator Idi Amin, who was president. He was a military ruler who had taken over the government there. And they were all expelled um, and had to leave. So the context of my family leaving, we were not obliged to leave, we were not forced to leave. But what had happened in Uganda we saw as a warning sign, or my parents, my family saw it, as many others did, as a warning sign, because there was anti-Asian sentiment. And once our relatives and friends from Uganda were settled in the West, primarily in Britain and in places like Canada, we suddenly had relatives there. So we could actually think about moving ourselves. So Uganda created a kind of strange vacuum effect, uh, you know, where it, it made it possible to think about leaving. Uh, and so mm. towards, at the end of the 70s, we left as well, along with many other Asians. Though I must say, I always regretted it because I enjoyed my time as a child in East Africa so much. How did that inform your identity as an East African? When I think about having lived in the US for so long and my kids were born here, they are pretty much American. But then how does that identity 
evolve when something like this, which can be traumatic, happens, right? How much of your identity is still affiliated with your East African heritage? Well, it's become more and more secretive in some sense, because, you know, when we moved, we were, of course, identified in the West, either in the UK or in North America, with other South Asians. We were South Asian by origin, and of course, we looked like other South Asians. Right. So the East African side of uh, of us basically had to be hidden because it didn't make any sense. You know, in the U.S. or in Canada, if you said you're from East Africa, because people tend to, to have such a racialized sense of what being an African was. Yeah, that makes sense. You had to explain yourself, and it was too inconvenient to go through a whole history saying, no, you know, during the day, during the British Empire, you know, traders and artisans and others came to East Africa from India, and that's why we were there, and then we left for X or Y reason. So basically, a lot of people just ended up identifying as Indian or Pakistani, while yet being East African privately. So it's a Mm. curious thing, you know, it was a form of passing, if you will. And some some of us could pull it off, others couldn't really, because of course it depended on how well the East Africans spoke, Hindi or Urdu or Gujarati, or very often they spoke it with an African accent, or they spoke it in a way that was not quite the same as people from India or Pakistan spoke Ah. these languages. I want to ask you this question from a sociopolitical and historical perspective. What do you think is the root cause of violence? Because you do so much research on violence and intersectionality of that. Um, What do you think is the root cause and does it still manifest itself? That's a big and difficult question. thought about, uh, I don't know if there is one root cause, first of all, to give you Gandhi's answer first, which is that violence always exists and it will always exist because nothing we can ever do is without violence. So he, for instance, used to say that, you know, we tend to oppose violence to life, right? Our own flourishing. But in fact, life itself is violent because by living, we die, as he used to say. You know, our bodies, the very fact that we live meaning means our bodies age. Right. Uh, is that even blink the blinking of our eyelids? So, you know, everything we do, which is a sign of life and survival, is also actually a sign of death and destruction and violence. You know, uh, giving birth is violent, dying mm. is violent. So you can't get away from violence and you have to accept it as a part of life. What you can do is try to convert it into something else, uh, right? To to make it work differently. So you can't live a life without violence altogether, but you can absorb it, appropriate it, and convert it so that it does the work of nonviolence and love. Hmm. How do you how do you make that possible? Which is why you know Gandhi spoke about nonviolence. It's a negative way of speaking. You know, you begin with non, and it's the same as true of the Sanskrit word, ahimsa, non-violent. So because he thought that violence is a positive category, it actually means something. There is something there. 
Nonviolence is negative. Nonviolence depends upon violence. Its name for itself comes out of its opposite, out of violence. So how do you act? So its task is to turn this violence in a productive way because you can't escape it altogether. But you can, as it were, transform it, appropriate it, absorb it, make it productive in, in another kind of way. And that is the struggle that we all must live, that we can't pretend to live in a world with no violence at all, because then there would not be any life. Do you think violence is basically co-opted by governments and any action, say for social and racial equities that draws on resistance and at times reciprocity to violence is deemed irrational or even barbaric at times, not so because it is so, but more so because it serves governments to monopolize violence? Yes, of course. And that's what, you know, the nation state is classically meant to do. It's meant to monopolize violence. Now, the thing about both Martin Luther King Jr. and Gandhi is that when they were active in their own times, they were seen as huge threats by the United States government on the one hand and by the government of India, the British government of India on the other. And they could only be neutralized, as it were, after their deaths when they are made into paragons of nonviolence, not in the way that they had argued. You know, so they were basically defanged and made into sort of cuddly, you know, icons whom you could love and you could respect and admire, but only by, you know, by making them completely harmless, whereas they were not harmless in their own mm-hmm. lifetimes. You know, they were, they were seen as being hugely threatening now, it's almost impossible to do that to a Malcolm X for various reasons. But, mm. you know, with a Gandhi or an MLK, you can try to do it. And the mm. United States has done it for Martin Luther King Jr. And the government and the, the independent government of India has done it for Gandhi because they, too, don't want, uh, you know, another... They don't want Gandhi to become or to remain an active inspiration for those who would object to and resist their own violence and rule, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, in a way, both these figures have been made, have been nationalized. They've been owned by the nation state and they are no longer available uh, to inspire people against the violence of that nation state, of both these nation states, to say nothing of others around the world. So I think, you know, they really um, have suffered in the process uh, that the price you pay for making someone into an inspirational figure is that they simply end up being, uh, you know, uh, appreciated for some quotation or some image. uh, And that's about it. You know, they don't, uh, it's seen as being a history that's already over, it's finished. Faisal, what are different facets of Gandhi's personality that we are not aware of? Well, for one thing, he was not a pacifist. So mm. he may have been a proponent of nonviolence, but he was a crit- he became a critic of pacifism because he thought that you know it depends on how you define violence. So he thought that it is better to fight than to submit. And if someone else is being, you know, sub- someone else is becoming the victim of violence, say the state's violence 
you must do all you can to protect that person, even if you yourself are not uh, being attacked. And that sometimes might require the use of violence, defensive violence. So how is that different from Malcolm X's theory of reacting to violence, right? From my understanding of Malcolm X, he did not believe in preempting violence, but he believed more in responding to violence, right? Yes. I mean, I suppose in that sense, you can see that they, you know, all thinkers of liberation from oppression, especially when this oppression is is understood in colonial or semi-colonial terms, and these people are, you know, coevals. I mean, they are contemporaries of each other, Malcolm X, Gandhi, MLK, but also from Fanon in Algeria, etc. So, you know, they all belong in some ways to, a, they're not all the same, but they share many things in common, right? Now for Gandhi, his aim is to convert the enemy into the friend. How do you do that? So, you know, one way of doing that is to voluntarily suffer. You break a law, you know, so civil disobedience is about breaking the law. Right. It's not nonviolence in the way that we've been told, that you follow the constitution and you do everything. No. Yeah. (laughs) That doesn't work. You break the law and then you take the consequences of that breach and the point of it is to make sure that your enemy or people who who see themselves as your enemy cannot escape the moral choice that faces them mm. you know that they either have to acknowledge to themselves that they are willing to tolerate this or they must be shaken somehow so that their sense of who they are who they are breaks and they are capable of what gandhi calls conversion mm. so these spectacles of fasting of uh, receiving violence without retaliating Mm. while yet insisting upon breaking the law. You know, for Gandhi, these are all ways of converting. These are all offers and opportunities made to the opponent for their own conversion. So for him, it was not simply the oppressed who needed to be liberated. It is the oppressor as well. The oppressor is as much trapped in this cycle of violence or in this situation that is a violent situation as the oppressed, though, of course, in different way, you know, on different sides of the, of the question. And so he understands that you can only transform a situation like that if all sides are transformed. It doesn't only work if one side is transformed because you don't want to perpetuate violence from the other side either, hmm. nor can you simply have an armed truce. Hmm. You have hmm. to consider the possibility and the necessity of a transformation more generally. How do you do that? That was the problem we faced. So Faisal, in today's age of social media and internet taking over public sphere and platforms, which are more accessible, we see movements that are more globalized. There is a lot more coalition building. I feel like we are, in a way, leaving the age of the guru, the leader, the authority. It feels like we are leaving the paradigm where one person is face of a movement. Do you think we will ever have people like Malcolm X, MLK, Gandhi in the future? 
It's difficult to say. I mean, in one sense, you're right that, you know, you with social media, especially, you have the possibility of citizen activism, like right. citizen journalism. So you have a fragmentation and the loss of authority. So mainstream media has lost so much of its authority, for instance. And so has the state in many ways. And so have experts, you know, for good and bad reasons. But at the same time, this fragmentation and the social media that produces it continues to give rise to so-called iconic figures. You know, they're often celebrity type figures. Like Trump? (laughs) Or it might be a lifestyle guru or it might be, could be anyone, you know. So, you know, these two things that are happening at the same time. On the one hand, the fragmentation and destruction of traditional forms of authority. And on the other hand, the continuous production of iconic celebrity type figures, political, cultural, you know, all kinds. It might be that just as you have citizen journalism, you also have, if you will, citizen uh, iconicity or citizen celebrity, where, as Andy Warhol famously said, you know, everyone can at one point for 15 minutes become famous. Yeah. You know, so that the, the life cycle of these figures is actually quite brief. You know, they come and go, they come and go. So not like Gandhi, who spent 30 years or, you know, India's independence or MLK or any of these people. The people who become icons in our times tend not to be icons for their entire lifetime, you know, or for their entire careers. It's quite interesting what has happened there. But of course, um, you don't need them either. So, you know, if you look at the way, for instance, in which children have become hugely iconic in this way, Greta Thunberg, Malala Yousafzai, and others, right? Now, their celebrity is time-specific because it depends on their childhood, you know? So they're going to grow up and grow out of that. And they might be important in some other respect, but for the moment, it's their youth that is what speaks to us. You know, it's like they're speaking to us from the future because they are the future. Right. So they're literally coming to us from another time to tell us uh, that if we don't alter the way we behave environmentally, we are destroying their futures and their kids. Mm. So it's, you know, it's interesting when a child becomes an iconic figure of this kind. You know, so it's, it's an iconicity that is not dependent upon age and knowledge and experience. Right. Nor does it depend upon learning you know, they're kids, but it it's really about the kind of truth that can emerge as it were out of the mouths of babes, as the Bible has it. It's their innocence, it's their lack of experience that is what speaks to us, and the fact that they represent the future. Now, Malala is a different story because she has had an experience, a very violent experience. Huh. She can speak from that, but in her case, it's like her childhood was robbed from her. That's true. Yeah. Because she had to undergo an adult experience. No child should have this experience. So in both cases, you're talking about people who are actually not of their time. They've been either deprived of their, you know, some part of themselves, their youth, or they're being deprived of their future, their adulthood, because of climate change. So, but and they are before us in this very in this very specific way, temporarily. So these are iconic figures who are temporary figures in, in many ways. You know, um, they can only be who they are during this period and for no other time. So we are seeing cultural shift and 
how we identify icons or how icons are created, it seems to me that it's much more nuanced and organic in a way. And it is not a function of, as you said, age and experience and even political standing, right? When we think about Malala, um, she's not a politician, as, as you mentioned. It's an experience that she had. Today's podcast is presented by Podco. Podco is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast. And I'm so excited that I discovered it as an indie podcaster. It allows me to monetize my podcast with a flat rate. And so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podco. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's Pod go.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o and be sure to add our podcast immigrantly in the how did you hear about podgo section of the application so Faisal let's talk about your work I want to pivot a little now you're a scholar you've done extensive work on intersectionality of religion and even violence, and your focus has been Islam. And I want to talk a little bit about that. I was reading your Guardian article about the globalization of Islamophobia that you wrote in March 2020. It talks about how Islamophobia has become a cohesive global movement rather than a sporadic act, which it was previously. And now, as a historian, I'm sure you are aware, and it's been established through research, that Islamophobia is quite prevalent, especially in the West, right? It manifests in government-sanctioned violence inflicted on Muslims in other parts of the world. Or in the West, I think it's mostly systems and structures that disproportionately discriminate against those who identify as Muslims. We see that in France. When I think about blatant discrimination against Muslim women, I think of France, which is crazy, right? Do you see any correlation between the resurgence of right-wing nationalism and the anti-Muslim activism that we see across the globe? Yes, of course there is, because um, most, if not all, of the new populist right-wing movements across Europe are also Islamophobic and explicitly so. But of course, they are not the only ones who are. And you also have Islamophobia among liberals or from the left. Uh, and this, of course, also plays into sort of more general, what looks to be a resurgence of racism in North America and in Western Europe and elsewhere, directed at all kinds of people, you know, not just Muslims, Hmm. as we have seen recently in the United States. And, you know, one of the interesting things about both the Islamophobia and the more general uh, revival of racism has been that these movements now make use of liberal and democratic categories to justify themselves. Give me an example of that. For instance, uh, free speech. You know, we shouldn't feel oppressed that we can't say things that are critical. Uh, hmm. You know, we should be able to say what we feel. We feel oppressed, in fact, by political correctness, by wokeness, by can so-called cancel culture, by all of these things. 
And so, you know, we are the ones uh, who are truly the oppressed. Uh, and mm. our oppressors are, uh, you know, ethnic minorities, racial minorities, religious minorities. In every case, they are minorities. So the, you know, the way in which free speech, which is a crucial principle of democracy, of course, mm. has been weaponized by the right, making mm. use of leftist ideas and principles is fascinating to me. There are many other things that can be said about the phenomenon. In France, you mentioned France, because, you know, Islamophobia also still has regional identity. Uh, It's not been entirely globalized. Uh, There is a, you know, there is a way in which, of course, in the abstract, it can be globalized, but it still has quite regional dimensions to it. So if you look at France, for instance, France is one of the countries in Europe which has the highest percentage of intermarriage between Muslims and non-Muslims. So in that sense, there is much more, in quotes, integration than there is uh, in other parts of Europe, like in Germany. But do you think that integration is seen as a threat by some? Yes, I'm sure it is seen as a threat. But, you know, I think in the French case, you also have this very interesting history of uh, Republican values, which call for, if you will, the forcible integration of everyone so that there should be a standardized way in which everyone speaks French, in which everyone dresses, everyone should look the same. And it's a very regimented culture, a very rich culture, but quite regimented in its own right. way. You know, <laughs> compared to England, you know, it's, um, you know, I always think when I'm in a place like Paris that, you know, you really can tell people by their class and, you know, they wear the same kinds of clothes, you know, they eat the same kind of food, you know, there's there's a, and in a way, that's part of French Republican history, you know, the idea of sameness. So it's that value or ideal, if you will, that is used or that is weaponized to forcibly integrate or exclude people who don't look like us or don't speak like us or don't dress like us or don't eat like us. Recently, just a, I think a few days ago, I think a French politician has even complained that Muslim wedding parties ah. uh, play music and dance in ways that are foreign. You know? Wow, so, wow. Whereas in the US, this would not be an issue. This wouldn't be an issue. But then my question is, how racist is France? Because what you're describing to me seems racism, plain and simple, nothing else. And yet it's not a racism that is... Um, premised upon segregation. Of course, there is segregation based on class and based on on race as well. But if you can, as it were, you know, make it in the education system and intermarry, that's fine. That's why Mm. I was saying that the rates of intermarriage are actually very high. So assimilation is the ideal, you know, rather than exclusion on the basis of what you look like. So, Faisal, you mentioned UK and you are currently based in Oxford. What is the political climate of UK at the moment? Are there any trends that are really standing out to you in the context of resurgence of nationalism? Or do you think nationalism is dying in more powerful Western nations like the US and England? Well, both of those things might curiously be happening simultaneously because the so-called revival of nationalism Hmm. 
in a way seems to be almost like its last gasp. You know, it's not the nation in the way that it used to be considered. Even in Britain, which, you know, has gone through Brexit on the assumption that in doing so, it will reclaim its sovereignty. In other words, Brexit is a form of, for the British, decolonization for themselves. You know, that they felt that they were somehow being colonized by the EU, and they now also have their independence, uh, which is why you had a party called UKIP, the UK Independence Party, as right. if Britain needed to be independent. It's it's almost like they were recycling the kinds of political slogans that had been used against the British by their former colonial subjects. But now they too can do it, you see. So there's a w- weird way in which the effort to marginalize colonial history goes alongside or together with attempts to appropriate it. You know, you were asking about politics and, you know, where I see them going. In Britain, as in many parts of Western Europe, you have, of course, a conservative government in power. It's fairly ideological, fairly right-wing. But what has happened is that Britain is also the country with probably the smallest far-right political presence. After Brexit, you know, once the Conservative Party managed to own Brexit, it destroyed the UK Independence Party and Mm -hmm. any other party that was explicitly racist. So you might accuse people in the governing party here or indeed in the opposition of being racist. The Labour Party has been embroiled in a long-standing controversy over anti-Semitism, for instance, But neither of the two big parties, nor the third party, uh, the Liberal Democrats, will ever explicitly be racist. But that's not true in some other places. So you think it's been counterproductive, Brexit has been counterproductive for right-wing racist parties in Britain? Yeah, it's funny. In some ways, yes, uh, because, you know, they were wiped out after Brexit they had nothing else to go on. But of course, you can also argue that the ruling party, the conservatives, have actually taken up a lot of their baggage and made it part of their own. Yet they've done it in a very, very interesting way. So Britain today, if you look at the British cabinet, is the most racially diverse cabinet in British history. And it took the conservatives to do it. Labour, which is the you know traditionally leftist party, hadn't done it, I think in part because they were always nervous. You know, they thought that their own so-called white working class voters would dislike it if they became too racially diverse. Hmm. But the conservatives have no such problem because for the conservatives, it's your ideology that counts. And that's what I was going to ask you, because to me, yes, a racially diverse cabinet on paper looks great, But it also matters what kind of ideology is being implemented and perpetuated, right? Yes. So, you know, today our Home Secretary is, in fact, a Ugandan Asian, Hmm. and she's the toughest you can ever be on immigration. She wants to bring in this Australian, uh, you know, way of doing things where potential refugees or actual refugees are actually offshore. You know, they're not even allowed you know, how do you offshore from an offshore, you know? Right. And yeah. some of them are sent to Rwanda, which is really weird because Rwanda is just one country north of the country she came from. It's like right. sending them back <laughs> where she came from. It's bizarre. Right, uh, right. And the former, you know, uh, 
you know, this is true of not just her, uh, but others as well, that they are tougher on issues like immigration and policing than people who can be identified as white would be. And they can be tougher precisely because they are seen as non-white. So Ah. that's the irony of this situation. And that's why it's important to recognize that non-whites can be racist as well, right? Because once we argue that only people who identify as white are racists, then we are erasing narrative around how sometimes non-whites can perpetuate or implement racist policies, right? Yes. No, I think that is an important point and it needs to be made repeatedly because otherwise, you know, the comeback from whatever you want to call them, the right or racist or or, you know, or racist in the right is that you're attacking us as people right. because what our race is, our racial identities, or what we hold to be our racial identities or ethnic identities, which are all, of course, historically formed. They don't exist in nature. Hmm. Uh, and that's not the point, precisely, as you say. Uh, you know, you don't have to look a certain way or identify in a certain way to be or to voice racist attitudes or to behave in a racist manner. So, you know, Asians in East Africa often uh, might have been racist towards Africans, given the position they occupied in between blacks and whites in colonial times. Uh, You know, they were structurally put in that position, and many of them might have benefited from that position. Uh, which also might explain some of the, you know, some of the opposition to them or anti-Asian sentiment that they faced. Do you think religion has any role to play in the shifting of societal paradigms, especially in America? And I'm talking about right-wing nationalism and how religion is weaponized to create, or not create, but uh, perpetuate that ideology. Yeah, it clearly is. But, you know, uh, one of the best books on this is, uh, you know, French sociologist Olivier Roy. And he's got a book, which I blurb, but whose name I suddenly forget, (laughs) on Christianity in Europe. Is Europe Christian, I think it's called. And what's fascinating about his research is that he shows that, yes, the far right, uh, you know, has taken up Christianity. And of course, in the US, this has always been the case. But when you look at the global career of Christianity, it tells you a completely different story. So in places like France, for instance, the churches uh, are not keen on far-right politicians hijacking Christianity because, of course, the people who actually fill churches in France are immigrants. Uh, You know, they're not, you know, the the, the sort of native-born white French people are not very religious. And, And the increasing numbers of Christians globally are no longer white. They're black or they're ah, Asian. You know, so Christianity, the demography of Christianity is changing. And, you, you know, Europe is not, the Western Europe or North America is no longer its great home. It's no longer the, its great site. And so the churches all know this. They know that Christians globally are not white And that even for white Christians, you know, when I was in the U.S., I remember that, uh, you know, people I knew from India who were uh, Roman Catholic priests would come to serve in the U.S. Because, of course, the U.S. is not producing priests. They need priests. 
So you can either have an online, you can, you know, pay through the Vatican for someone to do a mass for you in India, or you can actually get the priest from India to come. So, you know, in a way, Christianity is thriving outside the West. So that really queers the pitch. Now, America is a bit different because it's a more religious society than Western Europe. So, you know, their religion plays a different kind of role. But I wouldn't be surprised if we're changing. You know, there's a kind of, from what I know, there's a kind of decline in religiosity even in the United States, which has until now been being one of the most religious societies uh, in the world. So let's see what, what happens there. Uh, but I, I think Christianity is a much more interesting phenomenon than we give credit to. And if scholars are correct, then the next big Christian population, you know, possibly already the biggest Christian population, one of the biggest in the world is in China. And that just shows you how things have changed. And this is something that the churches know very well because, of course, um, they would know it uh, because of organization, missionary activity, congregations, and all the rest. So it's immigration that is reviving religious practices in Western Europe and increasingly in America as well. It's not just a situation where you can hive it off and say, okay, these are black churches historically, and those are Latino churches historically, and they can remain on the margins, and you know we will uh, be the center. Again, for religion too, as for politics, the center is gone. Do you think that will change how people view race and race relations across the globe? Let's see. Um, hmm. You know, as we see the uh, the hierarchies of churches changing in appearance, uh, with bishops and with cardinals, you know coming from Africa and places like that, you know, um, you will see changes. And as you see changes in congregations, even Mm. in Western Europe, for instance. But, you know, Olivier Roy's argument is that religion from the late 1960s, religion just became a dead letter in Western Europe for politics. um, And that Christianity has only been revived through immigration. So there's a disconnect between Christianity, which is linked to immigration and non-white immigration, and the claims upon Christianity as part of a Western tradition, which are made by the far-right political parties. Those two things are not the same, obviously. Yeah, because claims on Christianity, at least in the West, are pretty much tied to whites. At least the the prevalent narrative is. But you're not going to find any of these people going to church. In America, yes but not in Europe. You know, I mean, what's happened with Catholic bishops in the United States and Biden and whether he's allowed to take communion or not, I mean, that's a fascinating scenario, you know, which is unlikely to ever happen in Europe. So it shows you that America really is still an exceptional place in that respect. In what ways? You know, the, the precisely, I suppose, because it is secular in principle, whereas in Europe, you still have many places which have official churches churches that are officially supported by the state, like Britain. Precisely because America is secular, religion and politics come together so closely. (laughs) It's strange, but true. And of course, this remark was made a long time ago. Um, You know, it's, it's not something that I've, you know, I've come to myself. You, there, there is something happening here that uh, that makes America exceptional to some degree uh, or comparable to places like India 
um, mm. which are also secular but also deeply religious and in which religion and in and the state are very very close right that's so true and it's so fascinating this was such such a fun conversation thank you for coming on immigrantly thank you very much oh